On this episode of AvTalk, we discuss the ongoing Kabul airlift, the activation of the Civil Reserve Air Fleet by the U.S. Department of Defense, and the other commercial airlines that are supporting the evacuation efforts from Afghanistan. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How was your Wednesday afternoon? Hello, Jason. It's a solid midweek afternoon. I've reached the point where I am both exhausted from the first half of the week, but also looking forward to being exhausted by the second half of the week. Oh, that's certainly a place to be. <laughs> How are you, sir? Uh, better than that, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just as aforementioned exhausted. But it's been quite the week with everything that's been going on uh, in the world, gestures widely, but aviation specifically. And we certainly have a lot to talk about, don't we? We do. Where should we start? Well, let's start where we left off, which was last week. Things in Afghanistan were rapidly deteriorating, and it was not clear what, if any, evacuation situation was going to look like in Kabul. That, my what a difference a week makes. Last Wednesday, it wasn't clear what the situation was going to be. This week, over, I think, what, over uh, 80,000 people have been evacuated already, and flights are continuing at a very quick pace, dozens of flights each day carrying hundreds of people each out of Afghanistan to various places in the Middle East, and then onward, whether or not they're carried by U.S. aircraft or U.S. ally partners like the U.K., the Royal Australian Air Force, the Belgian Air Force is there, the Netherlands Air Force, German Air Force, all sorts of evacuation flights and then being carried onward by either military aircraft or chartered or, as we'll get to in a moment, pressed into service civilian aircraft. So a massive airlift effort has taken shape in just a matter of, of days. Yeah. And the White House provided some updated numbers that since August 14th, the U.S. has evacuated and facilitated the evacuation of approximately 82,300 people on U.S. military and coalition flights. And goes on to say, since the end of July, they have relocated about 87,900 people on U.S. military coalition flights. And just in a span from 3 a.m. Eastern on August 24th to 3 a.m. Eastern 25th, so a 24-hour time span, they evacuated 19,000 people from Kabul. So that's across 42 U.S. military flights, uh, 11,200 evacuees, and 48 coalition flights carried 7,800 people. So what really began the last time we recorded was kind of a very panicked, very rushed, very unorganized chaos at the airport, which now is kind of turned into, I'm not going to say a well-oiled machine, because obviously getting to and from the airport is still an absolute chaotic nightmare. But the operation within the airport, getting flights in, loading them up with people and evacuating them out, seems to be quite remarkably going well. 
Yeah, and that's kind of the key there is once you get into the airport, things are moving. Getting to the airport and being able to get through the gates in order to get onto an aircraft, that's the real trouble right now. And how many people will be able to get to the airport and get on a flight before the last flight out is the biggest question of all right now. Yeah. And it seems like there truly is a last flight out, as it almost certainly will be on August 31st. It seems like that date is going to stay in place. So if anyone's not out by August 31st, there's a good chance that they are not getting out for quite a while. Yeah. Then, I mean, that's that's the looming deadline. And really, the for evacuation and, and refugee flights, the deadlines a little bit before because those last couple of days they've said we'll be focused on getting the final US military personnel out. So really the deadline is before then. When is that deadline? It's a little unclear, but it sounds like a couple of days before the 31st. So I heard Friday, which would be the 27th of August, is kind of when they want to have all of the humanitarian airlifting done so that they can get all the military folks out and gone from Kabul. How that actually works out we don't know yet. The US military has control of the north side of the airfield, like we talked about last episode, where, where there's the north side of the airfield is the secure military controlled side. The south side of the airfield is the commercial side, which is controlled by the Taliban. And there's a runway in between, which is just a bizarre kind of idea. There's really two airports and one's operational. And then as of the end of the month, maybe one, maybe the airport will be, maybe it won't be. We just don't know. Lots of interesting notams coming out of Kabul as they kind of get things sorted and, and organized and things like that. Like we talked about last time with the airport being open for VFR-only traffic, some other notams that have come out, severe FOD, uh, so foreign object debris on all ramps, use caution when taxiing. After kind of the storming of the gates by people trying to get on flights, the airport's just a mess. They've reiterated that you need to have clearance to land because they are moving so many aircraft through the airport and it's a single runway airport with very few places to park. And one of the interesting things that happened after the record-breaking C-17 flight that had over 800 people on it is they issued a notum that said any aircraft prior to leaving need to report how many people and what the breakdown of that, the demographic breakdown of those people are before they taxi because they don't want to have that happen again. And didn't I see at some point that there was a notum saying when you land, you are not to turn your engines off? Yes. All aircraft should expect ERO, engine remain on. So most aircraft have done just that. Also, one that I think came out when we recorded last time, the air stairs unavailable for wide body aircraft existed last time and continues to exist, though wide body aircraft, some wide body aircraft made it in and out. So they obviously made do with, with something, but still lots of moving pieces and things like that. After we recorded last episode, the FAA came out with a notum for basically prohibiting US aircraft operating into Afghanistan, generally into Kabul specifically, unless they uh, had permission from the FAA 
and from the either State Department or Department of Defense or another government agency that was able to approve such flights, which is how certain airlines that are US-based have made trips into Afghanistan. But we'll get there in just a second. The one thing I want to talk about before we get there is the activation of the Civil Reserve Air Fleet. Yeah, only the third time in the history of the program, actually, that has been around since the, I believe, the 50s after World War II. Yeah, so after the Berlin Airlift, which was, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know more about the Berlin Airlift than I do. But if you don't, basic overview, Berlin is in the middle of what was then East Germany. Allies had to airlift supplies into West Berlin. And they created this massive air bridge after World War II. And after that, the US government said, huh, we're going to need a lot of help if we ever have to do this again. So what they did is they created the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, which is basically a volunteer pledge by airlines that the United States government in times of need could at roughly a day to 48 hours notice say, we are going to need X number of planes and Y number of crews to operate these missions. And in exchange, those airlines are given preference for peacetime transport missions. So carrying cargo or troops around or things like that on behalf of the Department of Defense during peacetime. Yeah. So you'll often see a Delta or United or particularly the smaller airlines like Atlas going between US military bases routinely carrying troops back and forth. They are really in an advantageous position to operate those I'm assuming pretty lucrative flights because of their participation in the Civil Reserve Air Fleet. And it has not been utilized since I believe the early 90s. So it was quite surprising to me that they activated this, I guess you could call it a protocol leading up to what's going on in the past week. But now looking back, seeing the sheer number of people being evacuated from Afghanistan, it does kind of make sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So the first time craft was activated was 1990-1991 during the first Gulf War. And then it was activated again in 2002-2003 during the kind of build up to the Iraq War. And this is, yeah, like Jason said, just the third time it's ever been activated. And Jason, you gave us a take when the news was announced. And I just would like to say that I told you so, good sir that it was an incorrect take because, as you mentioned, now that we're seeing the scale of the operation, having civil reserve aircraft absolutely makes sense in order to keep aircraft that are crewed and ready for flying into and out of Kabul there and then allowing the onward transit of people who have been evacuated out of Afghanistan from a safe place to other safe places on aircraft that are designed to carry hundreds of people on a regular basis. That That's what they're designed for. Yeah. Well, looking back now, it makes sense. I don't think most people, including myself, knew just how many people were going to be removed from the country seemingly so last minute. We can debate until the end of time how this withdrawal from Afghanistan has been kind of slapdash and not seemingly prepared very well. But looking back or looking now and seeing the sheer number of people that are being taken out, yeah, it makes 
absolute sense. And to put some numbers into exactly what aircraft are being utilized, it's three American and Atlas aircraft and Delta aircraft and Omni Air aircraft, two from Hawaiian, which I don't believe have actually entered services at the time of this recording, and four from United. So it's quite a sizable chunk. Yeah, and those are just the craft flights. There's been a lot of confusion about which operations are which because, as we mentioned, there are regular charters by commercial airlines on behalf of the Department of Defense. So other airlines are participating in this. And in this case, on behalf of the Department of State, there are other airlines that are participating in moving people who have been evacuated from Afghanistan either to other countries because those Afghans worked with other military organizations or other aid organizations and are being evacuated or being evacuated to the United States. And I just want to run down the list. And, and this is not exhaustive, but it's a list of airlines that have either operated for the United States or other countries to carry passengers either from US military bases or other places in the region to onward safety. Jordan Aviation, SAS, Air Belgium, Ethiopian Airlines, Qatar Airways, Freebird, Cam Air, which is the Afghan airline, but they've also been carrying people out and ostensibly back in, I guess, but that's a separate story. Highfly, our favorite charter airline, Star East Airlines. We will come back to this one because it's an interesting story. Air India, Pakistan International Airlines, Taram, Lot, Polish Airlines, Sun Country. Again, we'll talk about them in just a second. A uh, Kyrgyz airline that is unclear as to who exactly was operating that aircraft. Wamos, which is another very well-versed charter line, and then Air Europa. So uh, again, that list is not exhaustive. So lots and lots and lots of airlift besides government aircraft and the Civil Reserve Air Fleet call-up. Tons of aircraft moving around the region carrying people. Yeah, you can try to get a sense for who is operating in and out on behalf of the US government by searching for the call sign CMB. And right now, you'll see an American 777-200, a Delta A330-300, Atlas 744, Eastern 763. So it seems like if you search that call sign at any time of the day right now, you're going to find a few flights doing this. But they may not be operating for CRAF at that moment. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's tough to just by looking at the tracking data. Sometimes it's not possible to tell exactly who they're operating for. The Star East Airlines flight is fascinating to me. It's the aircraft was parked in Cairo since January 2020, flown for the first time on the 20th of August, flew Cairo, Istanbul, Bahrain, and then into Kabul and then back out and has made multiple trips into Kabul and out since. Did they just find this plane in the desert? We're like, sure, why not? Weirder things have happened. We're running out of ways to use that statement. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like as the week goes on, we're, we're running out of ways to use that statement. The other airline that I didn't mention, because I, I want to talk about this a little more in depth, is the airline Global Crossing or Global uh, X. 
Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's confusing to say the least. That's a very interesting one. So they put out a statement. So they flew into Miami, Gander, Keflavik in Iceland, into uh, to Bucharest, uh, Dushanbe, and then Kabul, and then out to a very small airfield in Tajikistan, and then back again. They two put aircraft, out a statement. I believe, right? Uh, uh, three twenty and three twenty-one. Its entire yeah, fleet of exactly. Yes, exactly. Their entire fleet of two aircraft, and they put out a statement. Their CEO released a statement on Twitter, and then the airline followed up two days later with the same exact statement, saying that they were operating on behalf of the U.S. Department of State, and all questions should be directed to the U.S. Department of State. Leave us alone. The leave us alone part they didn't actually say, but that was the gist of the statement. So fascinating stuff to see a U.S. Part 121 operator flying into Kabul, operating on behalf of the U.S. Department of State to a place I had never heard of before this week in Klob, Tajikistan. So there you go. Yeah, a Part 121 airline who doesn't appear to have any intention to actually operate scheduled flights in the U.S. It's a very confusing situation. And I'm sure someone will try to correct me, but they even say they have hubs in Miami and I think Atlantic City. They only got their operating certificate like 15 days ago. And here they are operating on behalf of the State Department from Afghanistan to Tajikistan. Very confusing. Raises many questions that the State Department, I'm sure, will never answer. <laughs> you can ask. Yeah. Right? And then we'll, there's the we'll saga see. of uh, the 727 freighter who just went right up the middle of Afghanistan. And remind me, where did it go? It went to the very same city. The two global crossing aircraft flew to. Hmm. I mean, it's that, close that to just the raises further questions. I. I mean, so what Jason's talking about is a safe air company, which is a Nairobi-based carrier, had a seven two seven that flew from freighter. Nairobi freighter. Yes, freighter that flew from Nairobi to Muscat, Oman, and then flew on up. To just say to, Tajikistan. To <laughs> in Tajikistan. So uh, I was staring at the airport code, which was not helping at all. And so uh, that is a very interesting flight, if only because, yes, they did in fact fly right up Afghanistan, the, right up the center of Afghanistan. And Jason, you kind of mentioned that not necessarily the brightest of ideas and you got some pushback on that saying well it was a risk that they you know were willing to take and they calculated the risk and leave it at that i'm with you i think i don't think that was necessarily the best way to get to where they got given the situation but i can see the other side of the argument mostly yeah i can definitely I'm not going to be convinced, but I can see the other side's argument that it was fine that they were in contact with what was it, Pakistani air traffic control. They're not going to proactively give them any traffic alerts or, or anything like that, but they were in contact with them. And if something really did go wrong, they could divert out of Afghanistan. But at the same time, just why? It wouldn't add a substantial amount of flight time to go around Afghanistan and through Pakistan. They already had overflight permits since they went through Pakistan to get to Afghanistan. It just seemed like an unnecessary kind of risk because the last thing you need is some 42-year-old 727 landing in Kabul with an emergency clogging up the runway as evacuations are in high gear. Like Nobody needs that. And there's no emergency services there, I'm assuming, or if there is, they're extremely minimal. 
So it may not have been a great risk to the aircraft, but it presented in in my eyes, an unacceptable risk to the operation in Kabul. Just it didn't need to happen. But I suspect there's more going on to that flight than we truly will ever actually know, given uh, the coincidence with the global crossing aircrafts. I mean, if you know more, podcast at fr24.com. We would love to know. Yeah, send us a nicely redacted email with no text. <laughs> nicely redacted email. The best kind of email. Yes. And let's see, just out of curiosity, what's going on now. There, even right now, as we record, there's a ton going on. It looks like we're down to satellite tracking on the ground in Kabul, which maybe means the one of the receivers is down. But there's a uh, U.S. Air Force C-130, a Turkish Air Force A-400M, the Cam Air A-340-300 is around, a uh, Royal Air Force A-400M, a KC-35, doing circles overhead, uh, another Royal Air Force C-17 is inbound from the south. And there's, what is this, another Royal Air Force C-130. And it's just a constant stream of these military and in some cases commercial aircraft in and out, in, in and out pretty much 24-7 at this point. Yeah, it's a massive operation. And on a future episode of the podcast, we're hoping to have someone on who has been helping coordinate these things. Obviously, they're a bit busy at the moment and were unable to join us this week. But hopefully in the future, we'll soon be able to have someone on to talk about the coordination that's gone on behind the scenes to make this all happen. Yeah, hopefully it's not just one heavily redacted uh, beeping sound for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be a bit better than that. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back. And uh, besides everything that's happening in Afghanistan, there's a lot going on in the world of aviation. So we'll come back in just a second and talk about that. Stay with us. Welcome back to the much more commercially focused second half of the show. As we mentioned before, it has been a busy week and things are moving. COVID has unfortunately not magically gone away because our attention has turned elsewhere. And there's something about Wi-Fi breaking planes that Jason's going to have to explain to me because I'm very confused. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But let's start with airlines that can never die. It seems like they might die, or at least they're alluding to it. I'm not, I'm not convinced. I think they're playing possum here. But Alitalia, the airline that will remain until the end of time and nothing is left living in the galaxy, says that from midnight on August 25th, oh, that's tonight, um, it will no longer sell flights beyond, what's the date? October 15th, I believe. After October 15th, you may no longer book a flight on Alitalia, the Italian Sky Team member airline. If you already have a flight booked after October 15th, too bad. Now you don't anymore. They're going to refund it or put the miles back into your account or do something. This is strange. This is a very weird way to transition from Alitalia to ITA in that it's not going to be anything resembling a seamless cutover, which you would expect. Why would they want to cancel already paid for reservations and, and then go back to try to regain that business? But no, come October 15th, you will not be flying Alitalia. You will be flying somebody else. 
Yeah. So the whole point of all of this is to basically ensure compliance with EU competition rules or try their very best to do so. So they have to be separate companies. It can't be the same one. So that's why they're getting rid of all of this stuff and they're going to auction off all of the other stuff, which will probably get bought by the new airline and then it'll just be a big money transfer and then we'll be done with it. And who knows, it might be called Alitalia again at some point. I don't know. But that's why all this is happening. That's why there's a hard cut over. That's why you're getting your money back or getting your miles or whatever, will you be able to bid on a set of glasses and napkins at some point in the future as Alitalia sheds its things? Possibly. We don't know yet. But if you had a ticket booked, as Jason said, you don't anymore. Oh, at least after October 15th. Or now, I think if you had a, a mileage ticket, they will rebook you on another SkyTeam airline and, and just get rid oh, of you. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Now, to a true airline that can never die. One is back from the dead. Ooh. Tell me more. South African Airlines, they're back from the dead. Uh, in a tweet this morning, they said, the wait is finally over. In just over a month, the striking and familiar livery of SAA will once again be visible in the skies as the airline resumes operations. has confirmed that the first flights will commence on Thursday, the 23rd of September. In a quote, the interim CEO, because it just wouldn't be South African Airways without an interim CEO, said, after months of diligent work, we are delighted that SAA is resuming service and we look forward to welcoming on board our loyal passengers and flying the South African flag. So that's nice. The initial phase of flights will operate from Johannesburg to Cape Town, Accra, Kinshasa, Hare, Osaka, and another couple cities, but not much, not a very big operation, certainly nothing leaving the continent. So you're not going to be booking a South African Airways flight to, let's say, Dulles or to London anytime soon. It's kind of a strange time for them to decide to reboot, given they have already missed the summer peak season and COVID is kind of back with a vengeance, unfortunately. So interesting timing, but South African, truly an airline that cannot die. We'll try again. <laughs> okay. So turning attention to some COVID-related stuff, Swiss yesterday came out and said that it will require all of its flying employees to be vaccinated. And then today, Delta Airlines did something different. What they're going to do is they're not mandating everyone be vaccinated. But what they are saying is that if you're not vaccinated, we're going to charge you an extra $200 a month on top of your health insurance as an additional premium. Because what they're saying is that each employee who gets COVID costs the airline $50,000 in health insurance costs. Or employees that are hospitalized. Or, sorry, employees that are hospitalized, not, not that gets COVID. That's, yeah, sorry, big difference. Employees that are hospitalized, it costs the airline roughly $50,000. I still think it makes more sense to just say everybody has to get the vaccine. Yeah. So this is a very different approach than United, who in the last week 
after the full authorization from the FDA of the Pfizer vaccine with a, a new marketing name, which I can't remember and will never use, I'm sure, United actually bumped up its mandatory vaccination date in light of that news. And then now we have Delta coming out and saying, well, you don't have to be vaccinated, but we're going to make your life a little more difficult and a little more expensive if you're not. So on top of the $200 per month that these employees will be assessed, which is very similar in the US to uh, with health insurance. If you are a smoker, there's an assessed fee, basically. Delta will not cover, they will basically not cover any expenses if you do end up coming down with COVID, I believe. So that's also a large, I guess you would say, stick or a carrot to get vaccinated i'm not really sure what we want to call oh, that i, mean, I want to call that a stick that's i a mean stick. okay it's a stick well if it costs the airline fifty thousand dollars if you get hospitalized think about yeah. what it's going to cost you yeah and keeping in mind this only applies to delta employees in the u.s who have health insurance through a Delta group plan. So if you are a Delta employee, but you receive health insurance through your spouse or through parent or whatever, this will not apply to you. So for some employees, there will be no impact whatsoever if they choose not to be vaccinated. And they report as of this time that 75% of the US-based employees are vaccinated. Hopefully, we'll see that tick up a little bit more. United reported recently that 90% of its pilot group is vaccinated and uh, any who are not vaccinated by the, the deadline will be dismissed from the airline. Delta is not taking that approach and people are quite split on this. I'm not split. I am not split either. I'm, I'm going to say <laughs> um, Delta is being a coward in this regard and I'm probably going to get a lot of well back and maybe an email from my boss about this, but Delta, you're being a freaking coward. Follow United do what United is doing, draw a line in the sand. You have a duty of care to your passengers. I don't want to interact with your employees if they are not vaccinated. I don't want to go anywhere near them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to look at them. Just get vaccinated. It's not that difficult. I don't care what your ideology is or that you happen to be located in Atlanta, in Georgia, and you have regressive politics down there who are pushing against vaccination. And I didn't mean to go on this rant, but you're being a coward. But here we are. Mandate it. Do it. Just get it done, or I'm going to defect to United and take the freaking train out to Newark and become a United passenger. I don't want that. You don't want that. So just do the right thing. <laughs> rant concluded. I, I, I love that the rant concludes with you threatening to take a train. I, I, think I don't want to go to Newark. <laughs> nobody does, but, but I, I will. I just, but I will. So if you feel similarly or along those lines, or if you are a person who disagrees with Jason, I would love to hear the argument, basically the other side of, of Jason's argument. It does not have to involve trains or anything like that. But but if if, if that's how you're one way or the other, shoot us an email podcast at fr24.com because I understand the, the, the argument kind of, I certainly understand Jason's argument, not the train to Newark part, but the rest of it, I understand. And I also understand some people thinking, you know, going one way or the other with, with you know, kind of corporate mandates. But that said, email us at podcastfr24.com if you have thoughts on that. Look, I think Alan Joyce, the, the CEO of Qantas, summed it up perfectly. If you do not want to be vaccinated, then aviation is not the right industry for you. 
that's not my opinion. That's the CEO of a, another large global airline. And I think that sums it up quite perfectly. You're not. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to argue with you. But we will stick with Delta for just a little bit because they have decided that the Airbus A321neo is the airplane for them. And they said, give us more. That's great. An additional 30 aircraft. So this is an incremental order. 30 more aircraft. Their first will be delivered first half of 2022 and they'll run through 2027. And at this rate, I'm sorry, uh, I mean, United will be getting 321neos in the future too. And I guess I'll be flying those. (laughs) <laughs> I kid, I kid. But seriously, that's another 30. I guess they really, really want to replace those seven fives that they put so much effort into. You got to replace them with something, I guess. Uh, by 2027. At some point, yeah. Okay. So tell me about, I saw this briefly when it was a, we're going to check the airplanes because there could be an issue. But now it's escalated to LL is removing Wi-Fi from the aircraft because of of an issue that could physically affect the aircraft? Yeah. So not a great situation, but something I'm sure will be remedied. So putting satellite Wi-Fi on an aircraft is not a low-key, low-stress, non-invasive procedure. It's literally you're bolting a radome and a satellite transceiver on the fuselage, the top of the aircraft. And these kits have been known in the past to cause metal fatigue and cause other issues. There was a problem with GoGo, or still is a problem, I guess, with GoGo or Intelsat's 2KU, where there was some harmonic situation or I guess some wind vortices that the Wi-Fi antenna was interfering with the ELT, the emergency locator transmitter antenna that would jiggle that around from the air vortices and end up creating cracks in the fuselage, which is not a good thing. In that case, the FAA simply mandated increased inspection. So whenever that aircraft went in for inspections, they would be extra careful to look around that and make sure nothing was wrong. But in this case, the relatively new install of a Viasat system on LL 737s, and the kit is from Astronics, um, apparently has caused enough issues with the installation that there is the possibility that the installation can fail and that the radome could break away from the fuselage and cause damage to the rest of the aircraft. And in this case, inspections apparently won't be enough, and they're actually deinstalling Wi-Fi from these aircraft, which is uh, no small feat. Expensive. Yeah, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it hasn't been on the aircraft for very long. No, it's been a couple of years on specifically the 737 fleet and not they haven't even gotten to installing it on every aircraft. But in this case, the FAA says failure of the attachment fittings, if not addressed, could result in a loss of the radome and antenna and consequent damage to the tail and damage to the fuselage in the vicinity of the radome. That's no good. You generally want to avoid that. So it looks like they'll be deinstalling it from these aircraft. And it seems like it is just limited to LL 737 fleet. And I guess figure out what went wrong and how to fix it before putting it back on the aircraft. I mean, that's definitely kind of what you want to do before you put something back on the airplane. I yeah. Certainly, certainly way to go. For the second time in. I want to say less than a year, we have an incident of a main cargo door, a freighter, this time on a 737-200, opening in flight. And also the second successful landing of 
an aircraft after that happens. Yeah, and you pointed out something interesting in the video. Break it down for us. So the video is showing, kind of starts up when the aircraft is on final approach. Obviously, they radioed that they were coming back to the airport and everyone ran out to take pictures and video. And so there's there's a fairly decent video of the aircraft landing. And as soon as it lands, as soon as the weight comes out of the wheels, the door just kind of swings closed, which is interesting to me. And it doesn't close and lock, but it mostly closes. So I mean, obviously, they're investigating why that happened because it's not supposed to be possible, but they'll figure it out and I'm sure we'll know in due course. Yeah. And that's another instance of percussive maintenance actually doing its thing. And I saw this once in person, well, maybe like 10 years ago at this point where a, a TAM A330 had the classic Airbus twisted nose gear coming into JFK. And the second they, they put the mains on the runway, the front, the nose landing gear just magically twisted back into place. So hey, how sometimes, about sometimes all the aircraft needs is a good jolt to fix things. <laughs> I don't want to be on a plane where it needs just a good jolt to fix things. But better than rebooting it like a 787. Uh, okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And we will close with some Ryanair news, which is always always interesting. But in this point, Ryanair has decided that it is going to completely withdraw service from from Northern Ireland. And this has a lot to do with the UK government and the air passenger duty, which is basically a tax on flights operated leaving or passing through or leaving the UK. And Ryanair feels like the government hasn't been helpful enough. And so it's taking its planes and it's going home. Yeah. And Ryanair is definitely one of those airlines that can take those airplanes and put them in one of its, how many bases do they have? Where else can they put these aircraft? A lot of places. They have options. Anywhere. Anywhere. All over Europe. Where do you want planes? I'll put planes there. I mean, we can go anywhere. We could even move it to another airline like Malta Air, or which is really just Ryanair, but many options. But it's Ryanair with different paint. So, I mean, in any case, yeah. So, this is one thing that I I think is going to be interesting as things start to get better, where governments are going to provide assistance and where governments are not going to provide assistance, especially as we come into next summer, which will hopefully just be called summer and be normal. And this will all be behind us. And we will be talking about where we're flying and where you know new airlines are forming to take people to new places and things like that. But I don't want to get ahead of myself and say that we're probably in for a few more of these. Not necessarily with Ryanair, though I'm sure that'll be the case, but with other airlines deciding where their aircraft are best based and, and what airports to best serve. And we'll see some regions or not some cities kind of lose service, but other cities gain service as they move those aircraft around. And it'll just be interesting to see what pattern that takes. Not sure how that's going to go yet, but we'll see how these things go. Yeah. Ryanair leaving a large part of Ireland is uh, not something I had on my ticket for this year. Yeah. There's that. That's all you can say. (laughs) That's all I can say. This has been quite the week. And as the US operation in Kabul and Afghanistan is expected to wind down by the end of the month, the next episode that we bring you, I'm sure will be a very interesting one indeed. So so plan on staying 
staying tuned for next week. If you're listening to this podcast, and I know some of you are listening to this podcast for the first time in the last couple of weeks, if you you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it, please, by all means, subscribe. It is free to do so. And uh, all it takes is the click of a button, and then you get the podcast each week delivered to you wherever you are automatically on your device so that you can listen to the podcast. If you really like it, or if you have uh, comments, questions, concerns, please, by all means, leave us a rating, a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's certainly helpful for people finding the podcast, and we appreciate it very much. This has been episode 126 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.